Hi, this is Carolyn Neelachlan, your hostess with the mostest of From Paper to People podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 279, 9 to 5 Movie Review. McBrien, along with Derek Myers, this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Last week, we reviewed the 2023 movie Barbie. That was Derek's suggestion. Derek, you handle all the newer stuff around here, and this week it was over to me. Someone's got to. Yeah. You know, you're not doing it. <laughs> I, I only do the older stuff, as we know. So, so I decided to go with 9 to 5. All the way back in 1980. That's just my, that's my jam, you know. Uh, So we're going to review the movie shortly. But before we do that, what is new in the world of pop culture for you, Derek? Well, I have, uh, I have some new, I have some old, I have some good, I have some bad. So uh, I'll try to get through it as, I'll try to get through as quickly as I can. We'll start with the new. Yes. Since we watched Barbie last week, I felt I had to watch Oppenheimer on the weekend. So I did. First time. Did not get a chance to see it in the theater in the summer. I mean, it runs three hours. And I like a long, boring drama as much as the next guy, probably more than the next guy. But I was a little reticent to see this in the theater. And so it's now it's been available for home viewing for a while. But, you know, you got to pay for it. So I think the rental price was down to like five bucks. So my wife and I said, OK, you know what? Let's just eat the five bucks. Mm-hmm. We'll rent it from the Cineplex online. We'll watch it at home. We had to watch it in two sittings, so we did a 90 minutes, and then we sort of went, okay, that's enough for me, and then the next day we did the other 90 minutes, and it actually turns out the movie sort of has a natural break at the halfway point, and I, I said to her, I go, it was I wonder if they had movie. an intermission in the, in the film. Well, the I don't think they did, but it just, again, you watch enough movies, you get a sense of the pacing, and we sort yeah. of got to that point, and I said, why don't we pause it here, because we had paused a couple of times to take quick bathroom breaks and stuff, sure. so I said, why don't we pause it here, take another bathroom break, and then we came back, I said, you know what, I think I'm done for now, and she said, yeah, I think this is a good place to stop, just based on what was happening with the story, and when we came back to watch that second half, I said to her, I said, that second half was 10 times as good as the first half. The first half was good and necessary for you to understand what was going on. But I said, that second half really seemed to fly by a lot faster. It just was more engaging. A lot, a lot more stuff happened. Um, so overall, I liked the movie. Um, I, I, I think you're right. I think it's just going to sweep through the through the Oscars. You know, uh, no one's going to stand in its way. We already saw with the Golden Globes and the People's Choice and I think mm-hmm. the SAG and awards like there's been a few of the awards already where it's just like cleaned up I think you're absolutely right it's going to be a coronation for Oppenheimer and I, I mean I don't necessarily have any beef with that I think the performances were fantastic uh, Christopher Nolan is a, is a director that I really like I think he's done a great job um, so it, it won't surprise me if it's just a clean sweep across the board for Oppenheimer which is unfortunate for some of the other really great movies that came out this year but you know Sometimes timing is everything. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I, but I joked after I said, I've seen the Barbie movie three times now. I've seen Oppenheimer once. 
I don't think I ever need to watch Oppenheimer again, but I can't wait to watch a Barbie movie again in two or three months when I, you know, once right. the details start to fade a bit. So anyway, it's it's just a different kind of movie. So I'm glad yeah. I saw it. Yeah. Um, then uh, coming up on uh, on Crave HBO starting this weekend, we're going to have access to the movie The Equalizer 3 with Denzel Washington, which I have not seen but really want to. Well, The Equalizer Hold, hold 2 on. Hold on. So there's yes. Equalizer and then Equalizer 2. And yes. now we're at Equalizer 3. I've never even heard of these before. Shocking. Oh, I know. The first one is fantastic. It's directed by Antoine Fuqua, the same guy that did Training Day. Stars Denzel Washington. Really good. I would strongly suggest you try and find that first one. I think you'll really like it. It's a really good action movie. Mm -hmm. um, and it again, it did so well they made a sequel. This is the first sequel Denzel Washington had ever done in his entire career. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, he never yeah. has. That's that's no, really cool. It, it wasn't. I didn't feel that Equalizer Two was as good as Equalizer One, but it was mm -hmm. still quite strong. And I I saw it when it first came out, but I I hadn't seen it since then. And in anticipation of Part Three, I really want to see Part Two again before I watch Part Three because I just watched the first Equalizer like a couple months ago. It it had not been available on the streamers. It just got it was just put back on. Obviously, in anticipation of Part Three coming out, so I had a chance to watch Equalizer Two. Again, I enjoyed it. I, I didn't remember very much of it at all. But uh, I mean, honestly, I can't remember the last time I saw a Denzel Washington movie that I didn't like. That guy, you know, he knows how to make a movie. And so. sorry, what's the concept of these movies? Uh, he's like an ex-military guy that's uh, retired. And then, of course, he's trying to live a normal life and he just wants to help people who are in trouble and he can't he can't let bad things happen to the people around him. And so he's sort of the anonymous avenging angel that like when people suffer hardship he steps in using his special skills as a special forces kind of guy to uh, to right the wrongs it's loosely based on the tv show from the 80s like the similar concept and that concept has then been repurposed into a new version of the tv show starring queen latifah as the equalizer that started a few years ago so i again, vaguely remember that now that you mention mm -hmm. it there was a tv show I, I don't remember the actor that started he was kind of an obscure actor i feel but yeah it was like was, a old british guy yeah an older british guy yeah i yeah i so, do kind of remember that oh interesting yeah so that one was those were sort of my newer uh, and then i saw another new one which was complete garbage came out on netflix a couple of weeks ago it's called rebel moon part one written and directed by Zack snyder and this thing is a hot mess it's like two hours and 25 minutes this is this was the worst two hours and 25 minutes i spent all week it was terrible everyone's like oh it's a little slow at the beginning but the special effects are good and you like action you like sci-fi i'm like it is the worst star wars ripoff i've ever seen and there's an honest you're familiar with the honest trailers youtube channel chris no what is it no okay that's a whole thing for another day it's there's oh a yeah you gotta bring this up what is it called yeah. honest trailers Okay. And so it's uh, basically these these guys that do a very high production value. They do like a five minute spoof of a movie where they basically rip apart the movie. It's called Honest Trailer. Like they literally are honest about what's good, what's bad. And usually they find all the bad things. They did an honest trailer about this movie, Rebel Moon, a couple of weeks ago, right after it dropped. And they do side by side between Rebel Moon and Star Wars to show you how many scenes not only are are similar, but are exactly the same the, the lighting's the same the, the positioning of the performers is the same even the dialogue is the same in some areas and they basically just keep saying like yeah we saw this before it was called star wars like why did we need this again and it's the honest trailer for rebel moon is all you need that's six minutes of your life you'll be glad that you watched it and i saved it two hours so avoid rebel moon it was terrible so a uh, couple of good ones, though. I, I Comfort movie was on the Turner movie classics. So uh, I watched Singing in the Rain on the weekend. Oh, nice. That's one of Yancey's favorite movies of all time. 
Yeah, it's definitely one of my comfort movies. When it's on, I always sit down and watch. And it always seems to be on like at 11 o'clock at night when I'm like, do I go to bed? I'm getting kind of sleepy. I'm like, oh, Sing in the Rain. Okay, well, I know what I'm doing for the next 90 minutes. <laughs> so, yeah, had had fun with that. And then I finally I had a chance to watch a documentary. For 40 days and 40 nights, watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's Documentaries. Derek's Documentaries. What did you learn about the world this week? Well, I learned about sports. This was on Ooh. ESPN. It's one of their E60 series, and it was called Unrivaled. And it was about the 1990s Colorado Avalanche and Detroit Red Wings rivalry. Oh, In like yeah. a six or seven year span, those two teams combined to win five Stanley Cups. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of shenanigans happening. Specifically, there was an incident between uh, Colorado Avalanche player Claude Lemieux and, yes. and Detroit Red Wing player Chris Draper, where there was yes. a pretty savage hit. Yeah, and, yeah. He, put, he put Draper into the boards and mangled his face. Oh, yeah. 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 And uh, it, it was pretty crazy what ended up happening after that. And then, um, so that obviously created a, a rivalry. And then Colorado ended up winning the Stanley Cup. So, of course, naturally, Detroit was pretty ticked off. The next year, Detroit ends up winning the Stanley Cup and uh, sort of as a stick it to them, they, you know, screw you. But then six days after the Red Wings won the Stanley Cup, uh, three members of their organization were in a uh, automobile accident mm -hmm. and two of them being players. And uh, like the one guy, um, was it Konstantinov? Konstantinov, yeah. Yeah. He, uh, you know, he was, he was messed up. Like he, yeah. he can, yeah, to this day, I don't even think he can walk unassisted. And it's like he's, his speech is all impacted. And like, here's a guy who was one of the absolute best players uh, at the time, like this professional athlete who went from that to that. And uh, so anyway, that, of course, motivates the team. And then the next year they win the Stanley Cup a second time. And yeah, it was just it was a fantastic documentary. And they mentioned that the two teams that were featured in this between them, uh, like they're like in this game, like they were talking about one of the playoff games. There go. There are 25 guys on the ice right now, like on these on the benches that are in the in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Like that's yeah. how good these teams were. They were amazing. They were the absolute best of the best, especially at that time. Um, yeah, so it's really good. It, I think it came out about a year ago, but I, I just saw it in the lineup last week, so I watched it. It's called Unrivaled. It's part of the ESPN E60 documentary series. And if you're if you're a hockey fan, uh, you're a Red Wings fan, you're an Avalanche fan, um, you know this this is fantastic. If you're a newer, younger hockey fan and you don't really know much about those those two teams that were basically both dynasties, they both won a bunch of cups. It's it's fantastic. And they interview so many of the participants on those two teams in real life, like now. So they, some of them have some perspective and have sort of like, well, yeah, at the time this, but now this and other guys are just like, no, they're like, will you forgive this guy for doing that? And, you know, it's like, no. Or how do you feel about this? Well, you know, that was then. This is now we're professionals. We realize the importance of moving on. So it was just interesting to see how different players uh, talked about what had happened. But at the end of the day, everyone in the interview has a whole bunch of Stanley Cup championships under their belt, and most of them are in the Hockey Hall of Fame. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's uh, it's awesome to see that kind of, uh, uh, you know, greatness on the screen. So it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Very cool. Okay, so How about you, well, Chris? well, as you know, pretty much everyone in my life is constantly trying to get me to watch newer stuff, and um, usually with varying degrees of success. Most of it's a resounding failure, I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. I just spend all my free time watching old movies and TV shows. Like, is that such a crime? I don't know. That's just my thing. But so anyway, the other day, my wife says, hey, there's this new show on Netflix. So why don't we give it a try? It's called Kids Ruin Everything. It's a Canadian series. So I'm like, all right, well, I'll give it a whirl. 
So we watched the first episode of it. I didn't really like it all that much. I, I thought, honestly, I thought the female lead was pretty good, but I didn't really like the rest of the cast. And so it's basically about this couple that get married and then they have kids only to realize, lo and behold, that kids ruin everything. That's the idea. And they're constantly like they deal with their friends that don't have kids and that you don't understand sort of the constraints on on their lives and stuff. And and then, you know, it's about how you basically have no time for each other as a couple once kids come along. So we're watching this show. We get about, I don't know, 15 minutes into the show. Our two kids start fighting. <laughs> so I turn to my wife and I say, Life imitates art. Yeah, kids ruin everything, honey. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess the show's right. Just like you said. So, oh, one thing that I do subject my kids to, though, is this to get them back. Here's your dad joke of the week. I figured since we're doing a movie review on nine to five, that it would only be fitting if I did a Dolly Parton joke this week. Oh, my God. <laughs> Are we so. going to need the sensors on standby? Are we going to have to bleep out the punchline? <laughs> okay, so Derek, uh-huh. why <laughs> why is Dolly Parton's waist so small? I, I have no idea. Because nothing grows in the shade. Oh, oh man. I can't believe that you got away with that. <laughs> But you get a free um, bowl of soup when you buy half. Yeah, yeah. Cinderella story. Boy, you must have been something before electricity. How would you like to earn eight dollars the hard way? <laughs> you know that Zen Buddhist kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You'll get nothing and like it. Hey, did somebody step on a duck? That would be me. Not the golfers. The golfers. I have a qualified yes. I agree. So last time out, we reviewed Barbie from 2023, and it focused on. Well, lots of different themes we mentioned, but I, I think you're like front and center were the themes of sort of female empowerment and the patriarchy and feminism and things like that. So uh, it's it, it's my job to cover all the stuff from Gen X. So I wanted to go back and watch a film that I, I felt had some similar themes in it. So I wanted us to watch 9 to 5 from 1980. And Derek, when I mentioned it last week, your wife Kay, who was on the episode with us, she seemed pretty happy about my choice of this movie. But uh, what really matters is how about you? So the film is over 40 years old. What was your first impression when you were rewatching it? Like, especially whether or not it held up after all these years. What do you think? Yeah, so so I, I, I think you even mentioned at the end of last week's mm-hmm. show, I recently recorded this off my, my, my digital recorder. And so I had watched it recently. But I thought I had watched it recently, but I had I must not have because when I watched it this week, this is not the movie I remembered. So I'm I, oh. I definitely recorded it on my PDR, but I think what happened was I recorded it and I ran out of space, so I had to delete some stuff and I went, ah, I'm not gonna watch that right away. So as I'm watching it, most of it was new to me in the sense that I didn't really remember it. I I remember the only other time I know I watched it was in the 80s on video and I probably was really young like probably between 10 and 12 years old because my mom I mentioned before my parents growing up they love country and western music so that was yes, a lot you've of mentioned that in my before, household yeah. so my mom loved Dolly Parton as an artist I mean who doesn't love Dolly Parton but 
growing up, we heard a lot of Dolly Parton in my house, and her songs, especially her songs in the 80s, are just so great. They're so catchy. They're, yeah, they're country songs, but a lot of crossover with the pop charts, so really appealed to me as a guy who loves 80s pop music. So that was sort of my memory and my takeaway of this movie was the 9 to 5 theme song, which mm-hmm. you know they still to this day play on the 80s channel all the time. Um, but I remembered when I was a little kid watching it and and not really understanding it and, and finding it hard to follow. And so when I watched it again this week, I realized like, it, it's almost like, you know, it, you have a memory as a child and then you learn something as an adult and you go, oh, well now that memory makes more sense. Uh, one of the things that I obviously missed as a, as a kid was when the, the women were smoking the, the marijuana and they got high and they had like these visions of how would you kill your boss? I remember when I watched it as a younger kid, I was just like, I couldn't understand why all these scenarios were happening. Like I, I was having a hard time following the the, the 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 connectivity of how these scenes tied to the real movie. And I just remember thinking, this is dumb. Like what's happening here? And uh, now though, watching it this week, I'm like, oh, that's what was happening. <laughs> so it's clear that I don't, I obviously have never seen this since the eighties. So this was, it was like watching it again new for the first time. Mm. And let me tell you, I, I, there's a lot to like in here. Uh, there's there's a lot that you sort of have to shake your head and and be feel feel bad and and cringe at, but it, not because the movie's bad, but because the movie was regrettably a reflection of how things were at the time. And you know, again, as someone who has you know in the '80s, I was just a little kid. I didn't know anything about it. But you sort of look back and just think, oh, my God, I can't believe the people did these things and acted this way, and and the people that were subjected to this kind of you know punishment for lack of a better term it's like you just you feel terrible for them you're like well no wonder they were they were so angry and wanted what they wanted they had every right and so this this movie was a bit of an eye-opener for me it's it's uh it was it was a good revisit i i really liked it we can talk more about it as we go through yeah i enjoyed it as well like overall it's it's a it's kind of a silly movie with a silly premise but it's a lot of fun to watch i found even 43 years later so the first thing i want to do is go back and look at the box office from 1980 I'm sure you know the number one film in 1980 was. Uh, I got to think it was Empire Strikes Back. It was. But surprisingly, The Empire Strikes Back only grossed $209 million. <laughs> but I mean, it was 1980. It was a long time ago. But yeah, I expected that like to be higher. Bucks. Yeah, I still expected that to be higher. Um, but the second movie at the box office that year was 9 to 5. It, it finished second with $103 million. Uh, rounding out the top five, Stir Crazy was number three. Kramer versus Kramer was number four, but even though that came out in 79, the year before, it came out in like December, but 1980 is when it made a lot of its money. And then number five was Any Which Way You Can, the Clint Eastwood movie with the ape. So side story, Mm -hmm. that movie is coming up on Turner Classic Movies this week. I have it in my PVR to record because I haven't seen that one since the 80s either. I know. And and you should go back and watch it. Uh, It is Any Which Way You Can itself is a sequel to Every Which Way But Loose, which came out in 78. Oh, I, I think that's the one. The first part one oh, okay. is the one that's the on. First one. The second I've one is better. Both, the second one is better, better, actually. But uh, okay. but then rounding out the top 10, there was Private Benjamin, Coal Miner's Daughter, Smoking the Bandit Part 2, The Blues Brothers, and Ordinary People, which again, came out the year before. This, that's a pretty solid top 10. Even when I go down, there's Popeye, The Shining, Cheech and Chong's next movie, Caddyshack, Friday the 13th, Brubaker, Flash Gordon, Raging Bull, Xanadu, American Gigolo, and My Bodyguard. (laughs) 
that's a pretty solid year for movies. Like, yeah, that's there's a lot, lot, a lot of good ones, and there's a, a few that I would sort of skip over, and there's a handful in there that I haven't seen, but I, mm-hmm. I know about. But yeah, the ones that are in there that I have seen are like there's some solid picks in that yeah, list. Yeah, big time. So this uh, this film Nine to Five was released on December the nineteenth, nineteen eighty. The budget was ten million dollars, and like I say, it grossed over ten times that. Uh, so let's just start with some themes in this film. I think this is the best place to start. I want to start with talking about women in the workplace. Like you mentioned, going back and watching it now, you realize, wow, what a slice of life. Like that was from a different time. So, and really, if you think back to 1980 or even like just Gen X in general, it was the first generation where women really entered the workforce sort of en masse. You know, if you go back from 1980, 25 years before that, it was the middle of the 50s. Women were usually housewives and homemakers. And then as the middle class kind of grew, you know, and more and more people wanted stuff, you know, women started to enter yeah. the workforce. And, and and this movie sort of plays up that idea. It's probably the central theme in the movie, I would say. Like I said, definitely a product of its time. But going back and watching this now, anything like just sort of jump out at you in regard oh. to women in the workplace? So much, so much <laughs> junk out. Loaded I, I mean, there's there's the obvious things of just that it's 40 years old. So mm-hmm. so the things like the way the office looked, the way the office was run, the way, you know, like little things like just the telephones and the photocopy, like things like that. The technology, like just the the aesthetics of the 80s. It was a it was a time capsule. It was a time machine. And, the, you know, the boss was smoking cigars in his office and stuff like just just the way that the workplace has has changed in some of those things. But obviously, the, the the huge thing is that it was just so male dominated and misogynist, and you know the 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 fact that the men were being promoted over the women, the fact that the women were never um, given opportunities to to demonstrate their ability when clearly the Lily Tomlin character is the brains of this of this story and had been overlooked many times for promotion, had trained all the people that were then promoted above her for no other reason than they were men, and. Uh, yeah, no, just the way that the way the dynamic was and and the way that the men for the well, I think all the men in this movie, the way they treat the women, it's just it's despicable and deplorable. And you you feel bad that that, you know, it's like you look at it and you go, I can't believe that things were like that. And you got to think at this point when this was happening, people were going, this is progressive. This is good. This is a step in the right direction, which it totally would have been compared to what it was. But you look at it through today's lens and you're like, how did we ever let this happen? And so, yeah, it's it, 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 it. Although it's a comedy, I'm watching it, and inside of me, I'm feeling angry about just the way that some of this. Comes I just together. I want to jump in for a second, yeah, because because you had mentioned just about the office, so I just want to go back to that for a second, yeah, because um, you know it's easy to focus on the the role of women in the workplace here, and we will, of course, of course, yes. But I like how you mentioned the office itself, because as you know, I am a college professor, and I start one of my classes at the college. I actually show a picture of Lily Tomlin sitting at her desk in this movie. And I asked my students, what looks different about this office to you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you should see the things they say. They're like, why is her phone attached to a wire? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, and when you think about it, we don't even have phones at our desks anymore. At least I don't. Um, and then some of the students look at it the, and they're like, what's that thing there? And it's like a teletype machine. <laughs> they don't know what that is, right? And they're like, what's that? This Rolodex. 
<laughs> like, yeah. Or, or the fact that it's like you've got a typewriter mm-hmm. as opposed to like, you know, I would imagine young kids today would be like, where's the monitor? To go yeah. With their they're keyboard? like, there's no computers on anyone's desk. And the other one that always gets me, they're like, why is everything so brown? The color palette. <laughs> yes. I was going to talk about that because later in the movie, they spruce up the office and they give it a paint job. And I'm like, this isn't any better. <laughs> Everything in the 80s was brown. Like yeah. brown really brown, ruled the day. Green, yellow, <laughs> like dark yellows. Yeah, like the color palette was so muted. You you, you were grateful when the 80s and the neon colors came in and it was Miami Bison Duran Duran. You're like, finally, somebody found the rest of the crayons in the box. <laughs> so I think we're going to loop back to some of the other stuff you were talking about in yeah, a yeah, second. Sure. Um, so Judy Burnley, Jane Fonda, she plays this recently divorced housewife who now needs to get a job, sort of strike out on her own independently, right? Yeah. And she's sort of the embodiment of that stereotypical housewife, you know, because yeah. she's like lost in this corporate setting, right? She she doesn't know how to use the photocopier and you know, all these tasks she's got to do. But, but the it, thing Chris, is, it, it, it seemed to me, and one of the things that they emphasized, which again, in the moment would have made a lot, it would have been a bigger deal, is the fact that up until that point, it's clear she hadn't had a job outside of the home. Yes, this was that, maybe exactly. As a, maybe as a teenager, she had a part-time job. Who knows? But even that, like she seemed pretty well off, so she probably didn't. And I think that was that was the relatable character for a lot of uh, a lot of the audience at the time. right? Oh, yeah. Like you said, women entering the workforce. And it's not just young women saying, I want what the men have. I'm doing this because I have every right to do it. It was, you know, women who were a little bit older, who maybe were housewives, had raised some kids, uh, you know, in this case, had, had you know, had recently been through divorce or, or whatever. And even that when they say you know, oh, she's been divorced. Like that was seemed very taboo oh, yeah. in the context of this oh, movie. Yeah. And I just got kept thinking like, wow, how times have changed. Well, the thing that kind of st- stuck out to me a little bit was how she struggles with all this stuff at the office. And she doesn't know how to use the photocopier and all this is crazy. But really, this would happen to anyone who would just start this kind of job for the first time. She's not given any training. They basically, yeah. oh, just go in here and do this. And when things yeah. start happening, she doesn't know what's going on. So they play it up to represent, you know, women in the workforce. But I think like anyone would struggle in that situation, wouldn't they? Like, Yeah, I, I, felt, I felt the same. It's like I, I, I can remember my first day on the job and it's like there's only so much you can do unsupervised and you can only provide someone with so much training before you have to let them try. And nothing, nothing helps people learn like making a mistake because I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I make mistakes all the time. The key is don't keep making the same mistakes. Learn from your mistakes. Ask for help so that you can understand why you made the mistake and don't do it again. And, and, and in this circumstance here, like that doesn't seem to be an opportunity. They sort of throw her to the lions then and it's like, oh, well, that didn't work. And then her boss yells at her. It's like, hey. Like, seriously. They each kind of represent a stereotype, too, because Violet Newstead, Lily Tomlin's character, she represents this idea that basically women are smarter than men, better at the job than most men, but still being held back by this glass ceiling of chauvinism or misogyny or whatever. So she was kind of sort of a stereotypical character. And then Doralee Rhodes, Dolly Parton, she sort of represents that whole idea that men are just pigs back then and just ogle women in the workplace. So, you know, by today's standards, it might seem ridiculous, but I think back in 1980, this was a little bit on the nose. <laughs> Don't you think? Well, I, I think, honestly, I think it's still uh, on the nose and applicable. I think from today's lens, it, you have to look at it more as, you know, 
this is what things were like how and ask yourself how much have things really changed yes things have mm -hmm. changed but these problems still exist they maybe just aren't as out in the open as they once were and they maybe aren't as as commonplace but i'm sure these kinds of things continue to happen and and not just to women i'm sure you know even to me one of the things was right at the very beginning when uh, jane fonda's character starts and they're introducing her and they go oh this is so and so from the mailroom and and it's a black guy and even he says like how am i ever supposed to get promoted if they keep bringing in new people so it's like although the movie was specifically about the women this movie could have mm -hmm. very easily been about people of color or other minorities, you know, it's like you could tell this story today where, you know, it's about a, a you know, a person of color or a person or, you know, a gay mm -hmm. person or something, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be about women. But believe me, you could remake this movie today and make it about women and just update a few things and it would still work. Very, let's very let's well. stick a pin in that. I want to come back to that. Sure. That's a really sure. good point. So the characters, like I say, are kind of stereotypical, but I want to talk a little bit about yeah. the cast. So Jane Fonda, I feel like she was a bit of a surprise back at the time when she was cast in this role, because she was basically Hollywood royalty. You know, her dad was Henry Fonda, you know, who won, he, I mean, he won a Tony award for Mr. Roberts on Broadway. And then he went on to be on films like Grapes of Wrath and 12 Angry Men and Failsafe and stuff. Oh, 12 and Angry Men, so good. So good. And, and, and Jane Fonda obviously followed in his footsteps, but she was a hugely successful actress. I mean, she was nominated for, you know, Quite a few Academy, which she was nominated for what? One, two, three, four, five, six Best Actress Oscars and one Best wow. Supporting Actress. She won two for Best Actress. She won for Clute and Coming Home in 71 and 78 and then was nominated those other times. So I think to see yep. her cast in this little workplace comedy movie probably was a bit of a surprise, I think, to a lot of people. Well... I mean, I, I think yes and no. And maybe this is just me sort of looking back. It's, you know, Jane Fonda was an advocate and used her position. And you, like you said, Hollywood royalty. So she had opportunities other people didn't have, other women didn't have. And I think that she she used that platform to great effect over the course of her career and her lifetime to to advocate for the things that she felt strongly about. I, you know, she was very big about, um, you know, against the Vietnam War and obviously for women's rights. Yeah, as well. I mean, so I they think, nicknamed her Hanoi Jane, you know, because yeah, she was so opposed think, to, to the Vietnam War. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a huge consideration for her when this when this opportunity presented. So I don't know if she went to them or they came to her, but the fact that her being in the movie, first of all, lent it a, a tremendous amount of credibility. Not that the rest of the cast isn't great and not that these people are were complete unknowns. Like it's, you know, it's, it's a big cast to begin with. But I think her name, and she obviously had top billing. I thought that too. I'm like, wow, she got top billing? But I guess at that point, she's won two Oscars. You got to oh, yeah. give her top billing. And I imagine she probably got paid the most out of anybody because she's going to bring people to the to the to the theater, and so it gives it that credibility, and it it's going to put bums in seats, and hopefully, you know, as we've talked about before, sometimes to to get an important message across, you have to present it as a comedy or a satire to show the absurdity of it, while hopefully getting people to think about, well, yeah, it's done in a in an absurd way. But they still got a, a very good and very accurate point to make. And I think that that, yeah, that's, you know, her being in this movie really helped all of those things. That's a good point, because it's it's more than just this little comedy. It's a, it's yeah. it's a slice of life from 1980, but it's about women's empowerment and feminism. And like if you think back before this, all those screwball comedies back in the 40s, they all had this element of social commentary. 
to them. Yeah. So, yeah, she kind of fit right in. So that makes a lot of sense. I want to talk about Dolly Parton. Obviously, it was her first movie role. I'm going to go out on really? a limb. Really? This was her first one? Yes. Okay. I'm going to go out on a limb here, that. bud. I'm going to say this is one of the all-time greatest movie debuts in Hollywood history. I thought it was that good. Well, I mean, uh, she is fantastic for so many, so many reasons. Uh, yeah, I, 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 she's definitely in the conversation. I, My I, I God. would not fault you for putting her in that discussion. She is outstanding. So she was already a famous singer by this yes. point. But man, does she have screen presence. Like she just oozes charisma on that screen. And the thing is, it would have been so easy for her to just sit back and rely on her sex appeal and her chest measurements. Just, you know, hey, I'm a movie star. And she, but she just transcends everything. She is an instant movie star through and through. I yeah, don't think I, she's I, I, an actress. I feel like she's a force of nature. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, oh, I, I man, was going to say, I, I would call her, I, rather than say actress, I would say performer. And I think that that's part of what's helped her all these years as a, as a musician is... You know, it, like any musician, you can write a great song, sing a great song, but performing that song is a big part of it. And I think a lot of artists over time are not good at that part of it. And those that are tend to have fantastic careers. And I think Dolly Parton is one of those people that she was clearly naturally gifted, learned how to really use it and, and is a fantastic performer. I don't know if you've ever seen her performing live. I've seen it uh, many times through TV and stuff like she really knows uh, how to how to you know, perform in a concert situation. So although she may not be a trained, quote unquote, you know, trained actress, you have that presence, you have that charisma, you have that natural ability, you know how to work an audience, you know how to, you know, take direction and things of that nature. So it, it just seemed like a natural fit. And that's why I think you have so many musicians that 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 go into acting and actually do very well. And, and she's a great example of that. Someone who came in, mm -hmm. hit a home run on the first time out. And it's like, wow, you think she's going to be in movies again? Yeah, I think she's going to be in movies for the next 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> so Lily Tomlin, um, she became well known on, on TV's Laugh-In. And she was also in Robert Altman's Nashville in 75 she was in the incredible shrinking woman which was that's the first that was the first time i ever saw her. yeah that was another movie that had social commentary in it and yeah. she was the voice of miss frizzle on the magic school bus in the 80s and then recently she's been in grace and frankie on netflix which i have not watched but she's also back starring with jane fonda in that interestingly yeah. enough but that, I thought that show she gets was great reviews. Uh, sorry, yeah. that, that uh, Grace and Frankie gets great reviews. Uh, again, my mom and my aunt, who are basically the same age as Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda, watch mm -hmm. that show and love it. Like it clearly speaks to that demographic. But I know my wife's watched a few episodes and said it's it's really strong. It's not doesn't necessarily appeal to me. But and then I also Lily Tomlin in the in the late '90s, early 2000s, she was in The West Wing the last two or three seasons as oh. the um, secretary to the president, and she was great. She was sort of a little quirky outside of the box kind of character but that's that seems more in keeping with the kind of uh person she seems to be and the kind of per character she tends to play so if we go back to 1980 it was almost unheard of to have a feature film led by a cast of women it it goes first of all men it, are the ones making the decision why exactly, would they put women in charge exactly and the other thing too is like you and i have talked about this before the typical hollywood plot device is this boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. Like that's basically yeah. the plot of every Hollywood script ever. But in addition to that, like you mentioned, it's, it was a male dominated world, the male dominated film industry and the office itself, you know, business in general for that matter, 
mm-hmm. was a male-dominated workplace. So to have this movie come along and starring three women and, you know, they carry the whole film was 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 quite groundbreaking, I think, for 1980. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, and I mean, you, whenever you've got a movie where it's clearly got an ensemble, I mean, I think we call it an ensemble. There's three of them. Uh, you're, there's always the risk that you have one person that's sort of a breakout star or who's doing the heavy lifting and the other two are riding along. In this case, I didn't get that impression one little bit. I felt that all three women yeah. uh, sort of each had their own lane and they, they were able to just, like you said, they sort of have, they represent different stereotypes or different archetypes and they nail it. Each of them does a fantastic job playing the character that they're there to play. They work well together. They work well off of each other. They all bring something a little bit different to the, to the screen and to the story. And I think that they, you need you needed three women to do this, and they all they all killed it. They just nailed it. It's just, it worked so well. Totally agree. But there was one male character in the movie, <laughs> Dabney Coleman as Franklin Hart, the how they they call him the sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. Yeah, the that end. seemed about right. He, I would add it a few more, but yep. you know it was PG movie, so you got to watch what you say. Dabney Coleman was a great character actor. Like he was so good. At playing that smarmy, unlikable, you know, and he he basically played the same character again in Tootsie, and but but I mean he did other stuff. He did dramas like War Games, and and he was actually sort of likable and sympathetic when he was in On Golden Pond. So I think he was a pretty good actor. He was never really a leading man. I mean, they gave him his own TV show. If you remember back in '83, he started in a show called Buffalo Bill, and. It was actually a pretty damn good show. Uh, it was like a summer replacement show, but it just never really caught on with audiences, so it got canceled. Uh, but uh, he's still with us, 92 years old, but I always thought he was a bit wow. of a staple of the 80s, and I thought he was great in this movie. Yeah, I always remember him from uh, the movie Cloak and Dagger with yes. uh, the, the kid from E.T. Henry and Thomas, course, yes. Yeah, and uh, I mean, War Games you already mentioned, and... Uh, uh, yeah, no, that's that's sort of more where my mind goes to uh, and this one. But like I said, I hadn't seen it in so long. I mean, I knew he was in it, but I hadn't really connected the dots. But now I don't think I'll be able to sort of think of think of him without thinking of this. And and I got to think, uh, you know, would you consider this probably to be his his biggest role? Like if if he was to die tomorrow, what's the first line of his obituary? Yeah, it's nine to five. It's nine yeah, to five or Tootsie. And I think it's nine to five because it's just a little bit more iconic. So, yeah, this is yeah. it. This was his big thing. Um, I want to go back to those fantasy sequences that you mentioned because, the, you know, they all... I love how they just they just get so fed up with him and all of his BS. They go yep. out and drink and smoke weed, even though you didn't realize it at the time when you were a kid. And, and I love how they fantasize how they're going to deal with this guy. The thing is, on paper, if you were just to read this script, I yeah. think the fantasy sequences would just would have been dumb. But the way yeah. that they played them out in the movie are really fun to watch. And it was kind of cool to see the women getting some revenge on this guy, even if it's just like make-believe, right? I really enjoyed this part of the movie. Well, what about you? Now that you've gone back and seen it, you know, and with a different uh, lens. Yes and no. I, I mean, I think it's important for the movie because basically everything they fantasize about ends up happening in in a more realistic way, which, which it's interesting to see those parallels. Um, for me... And I think this is where my memory was sort of a little foggy is the sequence with Lily Tomlin where she's basically a Disney princess and there's the cartoon characters. 
that to me, I, I didn't, I, I mean, that's just not my thing. I didn't really care for it in this rewatch. And I think when I was younger, I was just so confused by why that was in the movie that it did never seem to make any sense to me. But then when I watched it this week and I'm like, oh, she's high, she's tripping balls. Of course she thinks she's a Disney princess and is seeing cartoon characters. Like that makes perfect sense and seemed appropriate for, you know, what was happening. So it, it, it is what it is and I can appreciate it. I didn't personally like it that much, but I, it's, it was super important to the story and the plot. So, you know, I, I wouldn't have changed it. I just, it wasn't my cup of tea. I think it's a part of the movie that gets a bit of criticism, but I, I liked it. I thought it was good. It particularly, <laughs> I think I liked Dolly Parton seeing the best. Oh, I just love watching her in anything, but I mean, she turns the tables on him when, when Dabney Coleman is playing that meek secretary and Dolly yes. Parton's the boss, and then she, she goes, stand up and turn around. And she's like, yeah. oh, stop right there. And he's like, is something wrong? And she's like, nope, just wanted to check out your bod. Yeah. <laughs> and then she, the best part of the whole movie, I think, she asks him what cologne he's wearing, and he says, stud. Just the way he <laughs> delivers that line, that might be... My favorite thing Dabney Coleman has ever done in his acting career. Just that line, the way it's almost like he's embarrassed. Like, it's just so funny the way he does that. But I think I think it's a a subtle comment. Well, probably not so subtle commentary on the on the way that perfume and cologne is marketed and the names, because you've got to think that the the a scene like that we're supposed to understand has happened in reverse where he has said something yes. like that to Dolly yep. Parton's character. And I imagine her cologne was probably called something like sex appeal or, mm-hmm. you know, something along those lines. And it's like, she didn't name the perfume. That's how the company named it to market it to people. So of course, you know, I, I'm sure when, when he says it to her, he's probably like, Oh, sex appeal. Yeah. So of course when she, but when she says it and he's like, stud, like it dawns on him <laughs> as, as it probably does with anyone who's wearing, it. it's like, yeah, this probably is putting, you know, like it, it's it's not great how these things. Yes, it's a, a sales tactic to call it something, you know, risque. But then to acknowledge that that's what you've chosen to wear. Does that then mean to people? Oh, well, you're wearing cold stud. That means you must be a stud. So I'm going to hit on you whether you want it or not. It's, it just draws these other questions into 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 play. And again, I think it's being its intent is to be done in a more subtle way. But here they they nail it right. The hammer on the head and it's done for laughs and it's hilarious. So as far as the plot goes, then the fantasies are over. They sober up. They go back to work the next day and Violet accidentally puts rat poison in his coffee. But before yeah. he can drink it, his chair malfunctions and he falls and bangs his head and he's out, out cold. So they take him to the hospital and the women think that he's been poisoned, right? Yeah. So they go to the hospital. They mistakenly steal this corpse that they think is him. And, and that scene I want to talk about when Violet puts the corpse in the trunk of the car and then they, they get like a flat tire and they pull over. Yeah. And Dolly Parton goes back and sees that it's it's not him. It's another dead person. The way she calmly sticks her head around the car and she's like, Judy, can you come back here for a second? Yeah. <laughs> Such a great scene. And then she does the same thing for Lily Tomlin. She's like, yeah. Violet, honey, you want to come over here for a second? <laughs> right in the middle of this like panicky moment, they realize they've stolen the wrong corpse. Just the way she composes herself, the way she delivers her lines, she crushes that scene. It's one of my yeah. favorite parts of the movie, too. Really like no, that No, it's great. You're, you're right. Yeah, Loved agree. it. I absolutely agree. So so we talked about a couple of things that date the film. Anything else that dates it? We talked about uh, the way the office looks and, and, and sort of the way females are treated. Anything else 
jump out at you well, being kind of I mean, dated? Well, I mean, the obvious things. The cars are clearly of the time. Yeah. yeah. The um, the uh, the clothing. Yeah. Like what they're wearing, mm-hmm. how it looks, the styles. Um, though that uh, again, though that that's accurate for how things were. Um, those were sort of the ones that really like the. So I mean, we've already said the way the 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 office and the color scheme. The smoking always to a lesser extent, yeah. uh, you know, you can't avoid that. Not that that was as big a deal this time around, but it was in there. Um, you know, the technology, the telephones, the typewriters, the, what they say it was a telex and an adding machine on your desk. And the, the photocopier was this mm-hmm. massive, gigantic Huge. thing that was like super loud. And it took like, up a whole okay, room. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, no, I mean, uh, from, from as far as the physical, what you see on screen, it, it just, it, it, you know, it's a time capsule. It is what it is. It's obviously accurate for its time. It's not, it's different than a movie that's made today that takes place in the 80s. I find when, when that happens, where it's like we're making a movie now about a different time period, I tend to be more critical because all the details have been chosen. Whereas this movie was actually made in the 1980s and we're just watching it this week. So uh, what we see is really what, what we get. So I, I, I'm not being critical of it by saying like, I don't think that's accurate. It's just, it's interesting to observe how some of these things uh, actually were, were handled in the moment. So in fact, they have all those memos. It was in yes. in-person memos that were typed and signed as opposed to today. All that would be an email that would go right to your personal device. True. True. Um, so we've talked before about reboots and remakes and reimaginings. There was actually a TV show version of this movie. Did you know that? I uh, yeah, that sounds familiar. I don't think I would have been able to come up on that on my own, but uh, no, I definitely so, I agree. I think needless I to say, it. none of the cast of the film were in the TV no, show. No, of course not. But uh, Rachel Parton George played the part of Dolly Parton's character, Dora Lee. That was that was actually her sister. And Valerie Curtin played uh, Ju- Judy Burnley, and Rita Moreno of all people played the um, oh. Lily Tomlin character, and Sally Struthers was in it too. The first four episodes, Franklin Hart was played by Jeffrey Tambor. You know him from Arrested Development? Yeah. Mr. Bloom? Yep. And then he got replaced by Peter Bonners. He was in the Bob Newhart show. He was the dentist in Bob's building. I don't know if you know no, him. I'm looking at the picture now, and now I don't recognize him. So it ran for 33 episodes between 82 and 83, and then they, they took a break, and they revamped it in 86, and they got rid of Judy Burnley's character. So that was the original Jane Fonda character. And they brought a younger woman character in. And the three women shared an apartment together and it just tanked. But I feel like this concept has been revisited since then. A couple of years ago, a buddy of mine was like, you got to watch this movie, Horrible Bosses. Oh, that was a great movie. And so I watched it. I didn't like it that much. But I mean, there was one segment that kind of flipped the script on this idea because the female bad boss was Jennifer Aniston. Yes. And she's like sexually harassing this guy. So here's my question, Derek. You're the guy with the knowledge of the newer stuff. If what if nine to five were made today, what would it look like? I think you do. You follow the original as much as you can. I think because you, you touch base on this before you mentioned, people I think you have it as three women in the workplace. Yep. You would definitely not have three white women. Um, Possibly one of them would not necessarily be a straight woman, but I, I don't think that would be a deal breaker, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was thrown in. And well, the original I, had Lily Tomlin in it, so it was kind of fair. built it that way. Um, but no, I think, I, I don't necessarily, I, I think it's more of a, 
it would be a commentary both on how women are treated in the workplace and mm -hmm. how um I'm, this is the wrong word but i'm using it anyway how subordinates are treated in the workplace like i think right. it's more you, you you've got a, a richer tapestry to, to work with here you've got it doesn't have to specifically be the man woman thing which is still there's a lot of room there to to, to delve into that but i think in today you're going to really attract an audience by just showing that dynamic about how upper management and leadership and bad upper management and bad leadership can be toxic in a workplace and how the, the people underneath them who are what I passionately and, and affectionately call the worker bees like myself, you know, we're the worker bees. We do all the day to day stuff, how it can, you know, motivate them to to want to be in a position of leadership so they don't have to take that crap anymore. It motivates them to, to do things so that they can probably try to implement change, but it can also squash them and realize I'm never going to have opportunities to, to move up and I have to live with and accept all of this crap that I have to take from my upper management. So I think you could really lean on that side of the storytelling, uh, to really generate a lot of, uh, familiar story so that your audience because who are we kidding your audience is going to be made up of people who are essentially worker bees all day long anyway and so i think that's something that people can relate to that even men can relate to because i think it wouldn't surprise me when when men watch this original movie nine to five i think a lot of men were probably very dismissive of it mm -hmm. uh just like they had were with the barbie movie and i think that if you were to remake this or reboot this as a series or as a movie you know, uh, you, you, you could bring some of that male audience over by not just making it about the, the struggle of women as much as it's the struggle of anyone trying to enter the workforce, advance in the workforce, be heard in the workforce, implement change in the workforce when you are not, you know, the, the person who's been placed because of nepotism, the person who, you know, it, it walks in the door with a silver spoon and already has money and doesn't need this job. Like you're someone who I'm here. This is one of my two or three jobs and I can barely afford my rent and I've got a couple of kids to feed like like that's the reality of the majority of people these days. So I think that's that's how you make this work if you mm. were to do it today. And I don't think you could call it nine to five because I think there's very few people. Yeah, it doesn't oh, exist anymore, human. right? I think a lot of yeah. people work hours that are outside of that. And I, th you know, I think you get a lot of people that not only are not that's working nine to five, they're working eight to six. They're working seven to mm -hmm. 10. Like they're working remotely. They're not even in an office anymore. Yeah. You know, I mean, calling it nine to five sort of gives you an understanding right. because I think, I think when you say nine to five to most people, they understand that that means a typical work day, the hours of a typical work day. And I think a lot of people immediately think of the song, which immediately makes them think of the movie, mm. regardless of their age. Yeah. So uh, two more things I just want to touch base on before we move on. Number one is the song. So it's, it's it. probably Dolly Parton's best song. It's probably her most popular song, I guess. It, this is the song I think of when I think of Dolly Parton. Like she has other songs, obviously, like Jolene. Oh, and so many. Islands in the Stream and I Always Love You and all that. But this is the song I always think of when I think of Dolly Parton. And it was actually nominated for an Oscar for best song. It was up against On the Road Again from Honeysuckle Rose and Fame from Fame, of course. And Fame won. But 9 okay. to 5 is better. 9 to 5. 9 to 5 is a pretty good song. But it's in the so moment, good. I think it's fair to say that Fame was probably a bigger hit. And so that could have been why it won over 9 to 5. But, uh, but I again, don't there's, know. There's I mean, the... this, this film was huge at the box office and Fame was not. It was a bomb. But I think it, the fame was just more of an Oscar-type 
academy darling type thing because you know, it was about performing arts so i don't know you, you can't um uh, rule out the idea that you know again if your voting body is predominantly male mm-hmm. the, their their connection and possible dislike of what the movie has to say could affect their voting all around i mean i'd hate to think that that happened but i'm sure it did not that yeah i mean fame's still a, a song by mm. a woman but Again, I think by rewarding this song, they would tacitly be rewarding the movie and acknowledging the message. And I'm sure there were some people that were just like, I don't want to check the box next to nine to five because of if it's ties to the movie, which is terrible. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, before this song like sort of exploded everywhere, Sheena Easton had released a song in the UK called nine to five. Yep. And she had to rename it Morning Train. Morning Train. Yeah, because, yep. you know, to get around that. Uh, it was, but 9 to Five song was a huge hit. Reached number one on the charts in Canada and the U.S. And another interesting thing is it got that clacking typewriter sound. Yes, that's but, what I love about it. But, but Dolly actually was inspired to use that sound by clacking her long fingernails together. That's where she got the yeah. idea for it. You know, I, I remember seeing her in an interview and she talked about that. And then the other thing I want to mention about the song, my youngest son mentions this a lot. Like sometimes we're playing a game and if the score is nine to five, he always goes, it's nine to five, just like Dolly Parton. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and uh, a lot of other people in the room, they always laugh. They're like, where does he get that from? And he gets it from me. Um, well, it's and like in the, poker. If you're if you're playing Texas Hold'em and right. you're holding your two cards and you have a nine and a five, that's called having a Dolly Parton. There you go. So you got to do that. And and the other thing I want to talk about is how the film is really about sort of women's empowerment and feminism Absolutely. in pop culture. And so I want to circle back to that. So there are. This is not the only example of women's empowerment and and you know feminism and, and pop culture. Um, a couple of examples came to mind because I was thinking like, where else, you know, have we, has this been explored enough? It has been woefully underrepresented. No kidding. But some that came to mind were like Ripley in Alien. I thought of that. Uh, Thelma and Louise from 91. Desperately Seeking Susan was a movie in 1985. It was written Madonna, and directed. right? Yeah, it was produced and written by, by women and it was about a woman. It was sort of about self-exploration. You know, it was a bit more about feminism, I think, than female empowerment. But yeah, I've never seen it. I, I know of it. And mm-hmm. uh, I know the song from the movie. But yeah, I never saw the movie. There is a like a small Canadian movie. It's kind of an artsy film. It came out in 87 called I've Heard the Mermaid Singing. Oh, it, I, I know of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, it debuted at Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival, and it has Sheila McCarthy in it. She had a small role in Die Hard, but she's a Canadian actress. And I thought always thought it was an interesting sort of feminist film because instead of it being about women trying to gain the praise of men, it was about explore sort of the idea of trying to gain the praise of other women. So I don't know, it was, it was interesting. But of course, my examples are all you know, from Gen X. And I, I, I'm, I'm sure there's lots more recent ones too, but like anything come to mind, I hate to put you on the spot, but any sort of newer examples of feminism or women's empowerment in film or pop culture in general? We mentioned Taylor Swift last week. Yeah. I think we were talking about her. I think she's a perfect example, you know, of that as, as a more of a newer one. You can you can explore the works of Greta Gerwig. They probably all do to a yes. certain extent. I mean, Lady Bird yeah. comes to mind immediately. Oh yes, uh, and, that's a good example. I mean, 
I mean, and Greta did Barbie as well, so we're we're mm-hmm. still treading on that. But I mean, I'm sure we could do probably it. Probably not as many as there should be. I, well, I, I got one for you. You know what I was just thinking about? How about this? Like dedicate an entire episode, you know, to feminism and pop culture. It's probably worth doing. Derek, as you know, we have had a lot of success on this podcast. We've been nominated for three podcast awards. We've been featured in the Wall Street Journal and stuff. But we were named one of the top 10 podcasts women should listen to by the AARP's The Girlfriend in 2019 and 2022. So I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe we should cover that as a topic. Might be not be a bad idea, but uh, so overall, like it's it's kind of a bit of a silly premise for a film, but again, a lot of fun to watch, and I think it has a lot to say, even forty plus years later. What do you want to rate it out of ten? Well, let me just back up one second. Mm-hmm. I want to just talk about the ending before. Okay. We move oh on. yeah, sure. So the so ending was pretty as good. I'm <laughs> as I'm watching this movie and and not really remembering the details, so it's new to me. I keep thinking to myself. How is this going to end? How is this going to end? How is this going to end? And what I thought was going to happen was once once it's like, okay, so Dabney Colden escapes and the leverage they have on him disappears because mm-hmm. he basically you know takes the embezzled money to buy the goods that he said he was supposed to do. Yeah, he replaced uh, all the inventory. Yep. Replaced all the inventory. What I thought was going to happen was that especially when all the women were in his office and the director of the chairman of the board shows up, I thought, okay, what's going to happen is the chairman of the board's going to storm in and say something like, what's been going on here? And then he's going to try and throw the women under the bus and say, I've been away for a month. Anything that's happened is not my responsibility. These women were running the show. They all deserve to be fired. And at that point, the chairman of the board would be like, holy crap, oh, these women were doing it? Well, then they need to be acknowledged and they need to be rewarded. And then Dabney Coleman gets screwed. That was what I was expecting to happen, and that was really what I was hoping was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I was very disappointed to see how it played out where the boss comes in, oh, hey, all these great, great things have been happening that we, the audience, know that the women have have implemented all of these things, and Dabney Coleman is given credit, and the women don't do or say anything, and Dabney Coleman just, you know, he takes credit. Now, he's given this quote-unquote promotion where he has to go to Brazil, which seems like a bad thing, and and at the very end they sort of have those title cards where they're like this is what happened mm-hmm. to these people and they're like oh he got kidnapped by amazons in the forest and was never heard from again so you're like good he got his comeuppance but that to me almost felt like an after after the the fact like i'm thinking maybe they did some test screenings and people were like really after all of that he gets promoted like that's how the movie ends that to me just felt like such a punch in the gut and i mean maybe oh, that was I, part of the point i disagree i i gotta disagree with you because I think it's better because he takes credit for it. It 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 actually just personifies everything that's happened in the film. He takes credit for it. Oh yeah, yeah, these things work really good. The daycare and you know everything else, the timeshare and all that stuff, the the job sharing. So he takes credit for it. So the guy's like, "All right, well you've done such a good job. We're gonna send you off to Brazil." And but then it's presented as a promotion, you're going to get a whole bunch of money. You're going to, you know, like to but, me, that continues the, to be rewarded. Exactly. Because that's the world it was in 1980. That's how it was. But then the title cards tell you that he ends up being kidnapped by a tram of, of Amazons. And he's like, never heard from again. It's like, yes. I so then know, you I, finally get the dig at the end. Like, I don't know. I think that was kind of cool. 
So I, I, I just, I didn't, it, mm-hmm. it didn't work for me. And yeah. then the other thing was they said, oh, Lily Tomlin was promoted. I don't believe for a second she would have been. I don't think that there would have been any other reason for anybody in that company to do anything different than what they had done before. They would have put the next man in line into that position and the cycle would have continued anew. Uh, you, again, we didn't see the women actually try to take any credit for what they were doing while it was happening. And they basically, in my mind, they were the victims of their own success because they were so secretive. Nobody had any reason to believe they were the ones behind the transformation. And should they at that point have tried to say, yeah, this was us, there was really no hard proof that they had. And I, f- I felt that they were, you know, as much as during that time they were empowered to do these things and they could, you know, they demonstrated to themselves that they could do it. They, they never got the credit for it. And I just felt that those title cards were, were an afterthought that were possibly thrown on after some test screenings. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't like it. I just, and then, and even Jane Fonda's character, it was like, what was her success? Oh, she fell in love and got married implying and stopped working because that's what women do. I never got a, an impression ever in that movie that her objective was to find another husband so she didn't have to work. Like, especially after all the things they did, it seemed to me like she's like, I can do this. I can be someone. Mm -hmm. I can make something of myself. I now have this opportunity. I've demonstrated I have these skills. I want a career. I never once thought she was like, oh, I'm the love struck woman. I'm the damsel in distress. If only some man would come and help me. In fact, the opposite. When their ex shows up and she stands up to him, it's like, she, she doesn't seem to want that anymore. And the title card where she's like, she met a man from Xerox and they fell in love and got married. I but thought, she married yeah. the Xerox representative. That's so it. What? So somebody that was actually probably even below her, I think. I don't know. I don't know. It, it just, uh, that, that, it really, that was something mm-hmm. that I felt was tremendously unsatisfying about the movie was just the very, very end of it. it and, was, and Dora uh, Lee becomes a country and Western singer. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that was a nice little Obviously. wink wink right on the nose. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Like I said, I, I thought it was a lot of fun to watch. So. Oh, I did. I enjoyed yeah. it. It was a lot of fun. I, I Again, not something I need to rewatch right away, but definitely mm-hmm. something I think I, I should watch again sooner. Like, it shouldn't be another 35, 40 years right. before I see it again. Speaking uh, of re- rewatchability, yes. though, this movie has a ton of it. Like, this is a kind of movie you could watch over and over and over and over, I think, and, mm-hmm. and enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, to a certain extent, yeah. It's fun. Yeah, if, I think if this was on cable, a little more frequently like if this was say on like uh i'm thinking what's the channel that shows movies like amc throws on some right. movies like the movie the day after tomorrow has been running on amc all week i think it's mm-hmm. been on 10 times this week like if this movie was in in rotation i think it would do well mm-hmm. if given that opportunity i mean now it's on disney plus so i mean hopefully yeah. people are finding it there but do hey, you want to give, give it a rating, rating? yeah out I, would of 10. A, I would give it a solid seven out of ten. Oh, that's pretty i'd give it an eight i would give it an eight out of ten i really would i thought it was really good so yeah all right, so on that note, what do you say we have some fun with Caveman? Okay, so it was my choice for the movie review, so that means trivia is over to you this week, my friend. So yep. uh, what do you have in store for us? All right, well, we're going to do uh, a little game we like to call Pick the Flick. Pick the Flick. Yeah, pick the Flick. You get the synopsis, then pick the flick. Get the year. Pick the flick. All right. What have you got for us? All right. So this movie is called nine to five representing nine o'clock in the morning and five o'clock at night. And so I looked for other movies that have references to a time of day in the title. Okay. All right. All right. 
Some of these super obvious, very popular movies that I'm sure you'll have no problem with, but surprisingly, not that many movies have references to actual times in the title. So some of these are going to be a little tougher than normal. So in those cases, I'm going to give you another clue by telling you somebody who was in the movie because I think you, you know, I need that's it. A, you're going to need it. And even honestly, this trivia is going to be a little harder than normal just because to stick with this theme, I had to really dig. So my apologies up front. This one is is going to feel harder than normal. But there are a few few easy ones, a little uh, curveballs in there or like, uh, you know, lob balls right over the plate. So we're going to start with a, a couple of easier ones for All you right. here. All right. So the first one. This movie originally came out in 1957 and then was remade in 2007, 50 years later. Let me read you the synopsis. A small-time rancher agrees to hold a captured outlaw who's awaiting a train to go to court. A battle of wills ensues as the outlaw tries to psych out the rancher. Is that high noon? No, it's not. Is it? Can I, can I take another guess? Yes, yes. 310 to Yuma? Yes. Oh, yeah. All right. Since they remade it, you got two guesses, two movies, two guesses. Because they bo- right. they've remade both of those. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know, but okay. Yeah. Uh, all right, next one. I, I don't think you're going to get this, but I will give you the director as a hint if you're struggling, and I think you will. So this movie was fairly recent, 2018. Based on a true story, mm-hmm. three courageous young Americans prevent a terrorist attack on a European train. It was directed by Clint Eastwood. Ooh. Um, what was the year? Did you give the year? 2018. Oh, I don't know. It was called The 1517 to Paris. Oh, good God. And, and part of the gimmick of this movie is the three guys that actually stopped the terrorist attack. They were like army reservists or something. Right. The guys played themselves in the movie. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're getting into the territory for some of these movies I'd never heard of, but they fit. The, <laughs> fit. This one's from 1983. So I kind of hope you maybe have a, a sense of it because it's a little in your wheelhouse. An LAPD detective and his rookie partner are on the trail of a, a sociopathic young man who is murdering young women and stars Charles Bronson. Um, oh, geez. And it's from when? 1983. Oh, the only thing I can think he did was like Death Wish 4 around then, so I have no idea. It was called 10 to Midnight. Okay. All right. Uh, okay, this one, fairly new, from 2011. Fairly simple. This is the fourth movie in the Twilight Saga. Oh, good God. And it was from 2011? Yeah. Twilight Saga. I didn't watch these things. My wife, she, I don't know. I don't know. This was a little bit of a cheat. It's called Breaking Dawn. I guess Dawn's technically not a specific time of game. Oh, Dawn is because part of the time of day. Okay. Had to throw a a new one for our younger listeners. Of course. All right. Uh, let me finish reading the question of this one because I think you're going to get it. It's from 1952, but it's a classic. All right. A town marshal, despite the disagreements of his newlywed bride and the townspeople around him, must face a gang of deadly killers alone when the gang leader, an outlaw he sent up years ago, arrives by train. Is that High Noon? That's High Noon. Yeah. Sorry, Gary yeah. Cooper. Yeah. All right. All right. 
this this one's a little out of left field as well, so I'm going to give you the hint with the stars from 1970. Okay. After a relative dies, a professor goes to the funeral gets himself a job there working with the power lines and soon sees his entire life change before his eyes. Stars Michael Douglas. From what year? 1970. I have no idea. It was called Adam at 6 a.m. Oh, God, I've never even heard of that. No, I, I honestly, sorry. Some of these, in order to make the time thing, it's just, yeah. <laughs> All right, here, this one's easier. You should get this. Right. 1988, mm -hmm. Right in Your Wheelhouse, very popular movie. A bounty hunter pursues a former mafia accountant who is also being chased by a rival bounty hunter, the FBI, and his old mob boss after jumping bail. Is that Midnight Run? Yes, yes, yes it is. Yes. It stars nice. Robert Charles Grodin. Yeah, Charles yeah. Grodin, yeah. Okay. okay, I didn't think you'd need the hint, but I had it ready. All right. Here's another one from 1976, mm -hmm. and this one also stars Charles Bronson. So, you know, we already know how well you know his movie catalog. Uh, after spending three unforgettable hours with an outlaw, a beautiful young widow turns her story into a worldwide famous book. Stars Charles Bronson's from 1976. Mm. I have no idea. It's called From Noon Till Three. Yeah. I, I guess those are the th I guess those yeah. are the three unforgettable hours. I guess, yeah. All right, we're going into our way back machine here, and I mean way back. This movie's okay. over 100 years old. Oh, 1916. Wow. Oh, jeez. It stars Charlie Chaplin. Mm -hmm. A drunken homeowner has a difficult time getting about in his home after arriving home late at night. Uh, it's got to be have something to do with the, the time of day. Uh, yep. Um, it's not, it wouldn't be just modern times. That's nope. not it. No. No idea. It's called 1 a.m. Okay. Yeah. No, that was a tough one. Okay. I got a couple easy ones coming into the stretcher. Oh, Two more. Easy ones would be good. These are easy ones. 1969. Mm -hmm. A naive hustler travels from Texas to New York City to seek personal fortune, finding a new friend in the process. Oh, I like that movie. It's Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Okay, see, I had to give you a nice easy one. And then this one, I think is easy. It's from 1987, so I'm hoping that right in your wheelhouse here. Last question. A nerd gets himself in hot water with a new bully, a quiet bad boy oh. who challenges him to a fight on the grounds of their high school after the day's end. Oh, I remember this. I want to say it was called Three O'Clock High. Yes, yeah. Yeah. I remember that one. Coming down the stretch. Yeah, Perfect. That was, that was it. Yeah, you yeah. did pretty well. I mean, I knew a few Ooh, of those were going to be a little hard. tough, but uh, yeah. So I guess now we've got to we've got to take a week off next week because I understand you have tickets for a Leafs game. Is that correct? Yep. Got to go see the Leafs play the Winnipeg Jets next nice. week. So uh, no show. Sorry, folks. No uh, problem. We'll, we'll take a week off. In, uh, we'll I'll try to put together a best off episode. We'll put that out. But we come back in two weeks time. What do you say we come back and do a topic? Sound good? I love it. Yep. Let's yeah. see what we come up with. Let's right. see if we can uh, uh, reach out to some of the friends of the show. Maybe we get a guest coming on with us, Ooh, but we've got good. two weeks to figure it out. Yeah, that would be all right. All right. So we got two weeks off. Uh, we got a week off, I should say. We'll be back in two weeks time. So until we come back then, I'm Chris McBrien. And I just want to say on behalf of myself and Derek Myers, thank you very much for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks 
for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. We'll be right back.